Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I think it's a surprising and really upsetting theme in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that God and the church are so often at odds with one another. You would assume that if God was cultivating a people for himself and trying to represent himself in the world, that they would always be simpatico, but they're often not. There's often a tension between the founder and the institution that he himself founded. And Jesus is deeply upset by this incongruence. And that's why in Luke chapter 20, he engages in a sting operation. That's what it is. It's a sting operation within organized religion. And some of you know what a sting operation is. It's a gotcha maneuver that is supposed to suddenly reveal someone's guilt. You you also see a sting operation uh, in literature. You see it uh, in in the Shakespearean play Hamlet, uh, in which Prince Hamlet's uncle Claudius murdered the king, who was Hamlet's father. Hamlet discovers this and decides to expose the king, expose now Claudius, who had usurped the throne, but he can't easily do that without getting himself in trouble. So what does he do? He presents a play before the court, and in the play, the character of the king is murdered by an uncle figure who then usurps the throne. What is he doing? He's clearly showing the culpability, the guilt of his own uncle. It's a sting operation. Well, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is setting up a sting operation through a little drama, a little allegory, a little story, a parable, uh, in which he is unveiling the horrors of Israel's organized religion, of the religious institution. So I'd like to walk us through this passage, the main elements of it, and then conclude with a word about God and institutional religion as it relates to all of us. So the context is important. We are nearing the very end of Jesus's life. He knows that his doom is imminent. He is in the temple. He is teaching. And the people that are most uh, aggressive regarding that teaching are those who are clergy, those who are running the organized religion of Israel. And Jesus is well aware that the machine is about to consume him, that organized religion will turn on him completely until it destroys him. And so he decides to prematurely out the guilt of these people by telling this story. And so he tells a story of a company founder, a businessman, right? That's why he begins by saying, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So we have a founder of a business who creates the business and then steps away from it, goes away for a long while. By the way, this is a very common theme in many of Jesus's parables, many of his dramatic stories, uh, where you have somebody start a movement, this founder character, which is almost always a a symbol for God, that he starts something and then backs away and lets certain things happen. This happens, for example, at the the parable of the talents, right? Where he gives a variety of servants talents for them to invest or spend and then backs away and allows them to do it. 
The same thing in many of Jesus's farmer parables, where a farmer plants, sows seed, and then backs away and lets nature take its course. The same thing uh, with the uh, parable of the, uh, the ten virgins. Some are prepared for the wedding, some are not prepared. Um, and the reason they're not prepared is because the groom goes away for a long time and arrives late. Uh, and so there's a, a theme that is being communicated here in Jesus' teaching, a biblical perspective regarding God. And here's the perspective in very, um, in very uh, nutshelly form. God is omnipresent, always with you, whether you detect it or not. It's an article of our faith that we believe that God has not abandoned nor ever will abandon his people. He is not like a parent who walks out on you, never will. At the same time, the experience of God's withness is not always so easily detected, that it sometimes does feel like he is distant. And this is the biblical paradox of the God who is omnipresent. And yet, after human beings fall in Eden, there is a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way back, suggesting there has been a break of sorts between the time when we used to experience God and God's fullness and the time in which we don't. That's why there's a curtain in the temple uh, to suggest that there is now distance between us and our maker. And that company founder who begins the business backs away and allows the business to then take shape, the industry to take shape under some, uh, under some proxies. We'll get to them in a minute. But what does the founder found? What kind of business does he create? What industry? What's well, a winery? Uh, it's a vineyard. Uh, it's, a, it's almost like Eden in a sense. It's an ordered, cultivated zone created for the sustenance of life. And wine in the Old Testament is a symbol for joy. Why? Because wine helps you relax, gives you the biblical buzz. Um, and, it's an, uh, and it's very often a vineyard. This cultivated zone is an image, an Old Testament image for all of Israel. All of Israel. For example, when Isaiah the Old Testament prophet, decides to criticize the organized religion of his day, what does he do? He tells a parable about a vineyard. This is from Isaiah chapter 5, very early in that Old Testament epochal book. Isaiah writes this, My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. But, it yielded wild grapes. The vineyard of the Lord, writes Isaiah, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his planting. And God looked for justice among them, but he beheld bloodshed. Isaiah is using a parable about a vineyard to unveil the corruption at the heart of organized religion. And Jesus uh, does what most good creative people do. He takes older material and interprets it in his present day. And so that's the organization that the founder founds. But notice, he doesn't just leave it alone. He doesn't abandon it. He sends people to check up on it. He sends his proxies, right? The Old Testament would call these prophets. They act as emissaries between the founder and his business. So there's always an attachment between the two, a vocal and visual attachment between the business and its owner, its founder. And so while the, the founder's immediacy was not always seen or felt, the plans for his business were always clearly communicated by prophets. People were not abandoned. And what were prophets? They were like Old Testament alarm clocks that would sober you, wake you up, 
from your sinful slumber so that you would pay attention to the most important things in life and not walk like a zombie through life. They were there to sober us, wake us up. And therefore, even though we sense in our own lives, I think, a removal, of course, from uh, from God, a sense of distance, a canyon between ourselves and, and the ground of being. The ground of being is not voiceless. The ground of being is clearly expressing himself to us through these prophetic personalities in the Old Testament. Uh, and yet, these proxies are not well received. That's what this whole story is about, the rejection of the voice, the no to God. And and we, we know that because of the figures that are seen here as property managers. They're like they're tenants. They're, they're not a great group, you know. Um, you don't want to let them babysit your kids. You don't want them managing your life. They're not good life coaches. Um, instead, they're a very violent bunch. We know about their violence right from the start. And their violence tends to accelerate. So whenever the proxies show up asking, hey, how's everything going, they decide to punch them in the face, right? They hit them. Um, they send them away empty-handed. They strike them in the head. They are shamed. And then they're eventually killed. The parable is very clear. It wants to wants you to know that whenever you start rejecting God, there's a trajectory and it just gets worse and worse uh, until murder is committed. Right. So it accelerates. But not only does it accelerate, that is their violence accelerate. Um, they also um, their greed accelerates because first they just want the produce. Let's keep it for ourselves. We want the material gain. We like the vintage, you know, from this year. It's, it tastes especially good, and we don't want to give any to the owner. Like we we worked for it after all. Like we deserve to drink it. But they don't stop there with just wanting the produce. They then want to inherit the entire business. They think to themselves, now everything should belong to us. Everything. The vineyard ought to be ours, and they are willing to kill in order to, uh, to satiate their own greed. Um, and who are these people, of course? Who are the property managers? Well, it's very clear. They are Israel's religious leaders, the, the people who ran the organized religion of Jesus' day, those who were chosen according to Old Testament law. These are people who were commanded to exist because the Old Testament very clearly sets up a priestly caste. Uh, they are people doing a job, and yet their hearts are not matching their ordained function. Their interior uh, is not what it ought to be. Uh, they are possessed instead uh, with a very dark, murderous, greedy, um, protectivist impulse. What's fascinating to me, of course, is the founder's response to the abuse of his proxies by the tenants, the property managers. He is shockingly and even irresponsibly patient and sends more, three different people. But they're all treated shamefully, and when that doesn't work, he risks even more. He says, well, the reason, he's, he's logical, the reason that they don't respect these people is because they're not related to me. But maybe if I send a relative, even my own son, they'll handle things differently. They'll finally see that I mean business. They'll finally show some respect. And, of course, that doesn't occur. But we do have then the successor, the biological son of this father. And it says in verse 6, uh, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
Now, why would they do this? Like, why would they think that killing the heir would mean that they would get to own the farm? Well, we're not told in the parable, but it's somewhat uh, an assumed undercurrent that it means that the son is showing up with the deed. It means that the father has died. So the only living relative that owns this thing is walking our way. And if we kill him and the father is already dead, we get to keep all the spoils. And so that is what they do. They're possessed with the vengeful spirit of Cain and they treat the beloved son because of the escalation more shamefully, more murderously than any of the other proxies. Uh, They engage in deicide, if you will. They assassinate uh, the beloved uh, son of the father. Um, Now, uh, I want you also to notice how they do this. Where do they kill him? Where do they assassinate him? Outside the vineyard. That's not an accidental detail. Uh, Outside the vineyard. You may know that the Old Testament uh, law for blasphemers, for idolaters, is that they would be stoned to death. But the law also gives you a location for that stoning. They are to be stoned outside the city gates, outside of Jerusalem. Why? That's a visual symbol of excommunication. Not only are we going to kill you, we're going to kill you in such a fashion that you know and everybody else knows you didn't belong, that you are expelled from the community. And so here, the proxies um, are not only rejected, the son is assassinated in such a way that the vineyard tenants are suggesting he ought to be excommunicated from our midst. Um, That's why Hebrews 13 makes a big deal out of this, saying that Jesus died outside the city gates. Uh, And, of course, the assassinated son is a synecdoche for Jesus. That's why John chapter 1 says he came to his own, and his own received him not. And this is when the sting operation, well, stings especially strongly. This is verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Uh, consider, friends, a few things uh, here. Um, First, um, the meaning of many of Jesus's parables remains enigmatic to his audiences. That's why he tells his disciples, the reason that I speak to people in parables is so they won't understand. The secrets of the kingdom of God are not given to them, but given to you. That's why the parable of the sower, do you remember it? Jesus gets up in front of like hundreds of people and says, I have something to say. Uh, he doesn't say that bit, but he says a sower went out to sow and he throws some seed around and sometimes it lands well and other times it just doesn't and it doesn't work out. Amen. And then he goes away and people are wondering, um, what? And, he, and then he goes to, with his disciples and breaks it down and says, oh, no, no, no. The, the meaning is that the seed is the word of God and the different soils are different groups of people. But he breaks it down for them. But the crowds are scratching their heads wondering, what is this? Well, this is one of those parables where there's not such a, a thick veneer. Like, it's not mysterious what he's saying at all. He's near the end of his life. He's being very direct and very blunt. And notice what makes the crowd 
amongst whom are, of course, the religious leaders, freak out. It's not that the son gets murdered. It's that the vineyard gets taken away. The thought is, we own this, and we know what you're saying. You're going to take our prized possessions away and give it to other people. That's what scares them. And then, of course, Jesus gives them the death stare. Did you notice that? He stares directly at them, looks directly at them. Now, um, I, am, I am not generally speaking afraid of my wife. Not generally. She's very sweet, very warm, very Italian. But she has what, what I call the death stare, um, which makes me want to die. Because she looks at me so intently when I've done something wrong or said something stupid that I'm thinking, I know she's going to leave. I just know she's going to leave. Thankfully, she hasn't left yet. Um, but I think these people got the death stare because they were outed. They were outed. Uh, and then Jesus it does more than stare at them and convict them with his own visage, with his own eyes. He then cites Psalm 118. Psalm 118, you may know it, you may not, is a very upbeat, kind of jazzy, messianic psalm that was known as the Song of Ascent. So when people were going to the temple, they would sing this song, which was anticipating the final emperor, the great king that was going to come to fulfill the archetype of David, to be the final monarch for Israel. And it was a very jubilant psalm. And in fact, this coming Sunday, Palm Sunday, we're all going to say it together. It's a very famous psalm, maybe even one of the most famous in Israel's hymnal. But there's a weird discordant note in the middle of it that has to do with the defeat of the king. So it's all happy about the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of it, you have a total slam. And it says... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, in this happy psalm, it's predicting the most unhappy moment. This king will not be recognized as such by the builders or by those who are in charge of the religious apparatus. They're going to turn on him. And yet at the same time, that doesn't uh, deny the veracity of his claim to be king. So Jesus says this about himself. And he predicts his own spurning. And he gives a warning to those who spurn him. That if the assumption is if you build your life upon a cornerstone, you'll do quite well. But if you are antagonistic to this cornerstone and it lands on you, you won't survive. And if you fall on it, you won't survive. He is saying something very bold about himself. I am the king. And to oppose the king means the dissolution of your person, the defeat, not of me, the king, but of you. It's quite a claim to have about oneself. That is what he's saying. He's saying to reject or spurn me, God's son, God's fullest revelation of God's own self, is to doom yourself. And so this is a dark sting operation, friends, where Jesus exposes the Old Testament assembly, the Old Testament church with all of its structures those structures were ordained by God, and yet they did not recognize the coming of God in their midst. They were so out of sync that they not only uh, uh, sinned, they sinned so grievously they committed deicide. They were willing to slaughter the one who was sent to them to save them. Um, and this is the point, I think, of this passage in so many ways. Organized religion can become so vile that it actually acts in opposition to its original charter. It can become so insidiously sick that it does the very opposite thing that it was called to do, to use God's name, to mask abuse, to play power games, to manipulate, 
to satiate greed, even to becoming the would-be assassins of God. Uh, So organized religion, as we see in this parable, can oppose its founder and that founder's charter. Anyway, that's all I have to say to you today. I hope you have a good week. (laughs) I mean, it's heavy, right? This is an an, an insanely lengthy passage, very heavy. But I would like to apply this to us by speaking about God and organized religion and then God and the individual. But I have to speak about God and and organized religion because that in so many ways is what this parable is about, unmasking uh, the dark decrepitude of Uh, what organized religion can entail. I want to say something to you today that is patently obvious, so patently obvious it ought not to be said, and yet sometimes we avoid it. And it's this. While Old Testament organized religion, with its biblically ordained temple and priests, and New Testament organized religion, called the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, the pillar and ground of truth, in our creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, while they are ordained by God, They are not and never have been infallible. Not yet. There's tension in the Old Testament and in the New between the founder and the farm, between the one who is perfect and the multitude, those who serve him, who are sinners. The 39 Articles is the Anglican statement of faith. You can read it in about 10 minutes. It's quite good. There is, of course, I have to say that because I'm part of the team, but I do think it's good. Um, it's enriched with scripture. And my favorite article within the 39 Articles is Article 19 called Of the Church. It's only about three sentences, but my favorite among them is at the end where it says the church can and has erred, made mistakes in matters of behavior, ceremonies, and faith or belief. I think it's comforting because it's so obviously and sadly true. New Testament organized religion is not infallible in either behavior or beliefs. And yet, I find within myself and maybe amongst others a great temptation, a temptation to adopt what I will call a premature eschatology. What do I mean by premature eschatology? Very big theological uh, word, eschatology. Eschatology refers to the day of the Lord, the time in which God will take the injustice of the world and unmake it, will unmake death, and will uh, uh, cause creation once again to flourish without hindrance, to create a perfect world. And we do have that as our hope, that God and the eschaton will do these things. But we can also have a premature eschatology in which we expect him to do all of that in some form right here and right now. And that can often affect our understanding of organized religion and the church. We can adopt a premature eschatology. We can do that, for example, with an individual pastor. I know many Christian families, consecrated, lovely families, who have picked up their whole family and moved to some random little town in Idaho or Southern California because some famous pastor is there and they believe only that pastor and that church really has it right, really has the truth. And if I align myself with this person that seems to have a sense of infallibility, then we will be better off. Premature eschatology. Um, Other people do that uh, same kind of move uh, regarding a particular set of theologies, right? If you're you're, um, 
if you're a totally reformed person, you may know this movement, it's called TR, totally reformed. If you're totally, which I don't know entirely what it means. I mean, I think it's Calvinism plus beards or something, <laughs> or heavy drinking and cigars. I don't know, I don't know. But, um, but, but if you're that, if you've got your theology completely down and you're more of an 18-point Calvinist instead of just a five-pointer, then you're safe. And I can align myself with you knowing that perfect teaching is all that matters, or most of what matters, and under that infallible structure, I'll flourish. The same thing could, could be said of certain Pentecostal movements that say, if your church has certain experiences of the Holy Spirit, I know that it's like this close to the kingdom of God, and I'll have a sense of, of infallibility and protection and um, safety. Um, for other people, it has to do with having enough personal faith. If I just finally reach that place in my life where I have enough personal faith, I'll be able to almost create a faith force field around me that prevents negativity. I won't get sick. My kids won't get sick. My marriage will be beautiful and lovely and life-giving always. We won't have financial strain. Only if I personally have enough faith. Um, for other people, it has to do with a romantic view of church history. If, if my particular denomination has a long history with rich and ancient patterns and liturgies and church councils, it'll all be free from error, not in the practice, but in the beliefs, totally free from error. Friends, all of these things that I've just mentioned are examples of premature eschatology, expecting a form of, per, of perfection and protection in organized religion, even though biblically speaking, that has never been promised, not once. Um, now, I think it's very tempting to believe in premature eschatology in some form in a church, whether it's a specific pastor or denomination, that they can be fairly infallible. And why wouldn't we want that? We live within a world that is so very fallible, that is always falling apart, that is always seemingly in crisis, uh, in which things don't hold together, not the family, not politics, not religion, not financial markets, not gender conceptions, not anything. So we understandably yearn for something that is safe, where we can rest our head and not have to worry all the time, a place where we'll be hurt less. But does scripture itself promise a perfect church, either doctrinally or ethically? The answer is distressingly clear. And it is no. It is no. This is why, by the way, Paul writes all of his epistles to correct behavioral as well as doctrinal error within the church itself. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, if we, apostles, chosen people, part of the religious apparatus, if we or an angel from heaven gives you another gospel, let us be eternally damned. And then he writes about St. Peter in chapter 2, who was doing that very thing. Peter was fairly central in the apparatus, right? But what is he saying? The truth is over the church. The church is under that truth and judged by that truth. And at times needs to be judged and corrected by that truth. And this is why, by the way, the risen and ascended Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 critiques several churches, both for their immorality as well as their bad theology. Now, it is true the church is perfected at some point in Scripture, but let's just say it happens late in the game, like Revelation 21, late in the game, in which the bride of Christ is made spotless for her groom. But again, 
happens rather late. And here's my concern, friends, when it comes to premature eschatology, expecting too much from really organized religion right here and right now, um, it hurts us. It hurts our faith. We end up getting hurt by pasting upon the church qualities that only belong to God, like perfection. Um, when people trust a pastor too much, and then that same pastor gets in, in the thick of a scandal, I've seen that devastate people's faith because they transmitted faith that ought to belong to Christ and Christ alone onto a proxy, and then they get devastated. Or people that, uh, that decide, usually it's in their 20s, that they're going to glom on to what they regard as a perfect Christian vision or theological institution, and they, they give all their weight to it and spend all their life defending why they made that choice, and it's the perfect, you know, it goes right back to Jesus or the apostles, or it's the perfect experience of the Holy Spirit or the perfect doctrinal system. And then what happens later in life is they discover it's not all it was cracked up to be. And sometimes they lose their faith because they place their faith too much in some institution rather than in the Christ who founded that institution. They don't separate the two. Um, Jack Allen, who was uh, one of my favorite humans, he was one of the he was the last good presiding bishop in the Episcopal Church. And, and at his retirement, he made a final speech to all the bishops and the clergy who were there gathered at America's General Convention. And he, this was his last public line. He said, so before all of you, I must repent, for I have loved the church more than the Lord of the church. And he sat down. He confused the two. Do I blame him? No, it happens all the time. It's very easy to do. Uh, and so I, I say this to you with great tenderness and love today, um, that we have to be able... We have to be able to understand the church for what it is and organized religion for what it is. This parable teaches us in so many things, but one of them is that human beings who carry out the charter of God do not often do that faithfully and fully. Now, I will say this. While organized religion is, is not and cannot be infallible, can it be help, healthy and helpful? Of course, but only if it's grounded upon something more than itself. It has to be grounded upon more than power and reputation and influence and artistry and romance and programs. It has to be built upon the cornerstone. We need the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone that gives us any validity. So the question has to be, or questions have to be, is it faithful to Christ whom the scriptures reveal? Does the institution seek to find its own solidity, not upon an individual personality or a romantic view of church history or tradition, but upon Christ and the word of God that has been revealed to us? Does the institution see Christ as superior to itself? If so, then the church, of course, can be imperfect, but life-giving. It's a beautiful temporary shelter in which we await the revelation of the new heavens and the new earth, at which time all things will be made perfect. But, friends, there is a silver lining to having a fallible church built upon an infallible Christ. What is that silver lining? There's room for us. There's room for us. Because what are we but a collection of fallibilities? Uh, and so let me speak now about God and the individual. I want to land this text for all of us because we might read this passage and wrongly deduce that this text only has to do with long-dead Jewish clergy from A.D. 33 or institutional miscreants and bad ministers. And so this is off the hook Sunday, right? We don't have to worry about ourselves. 
Um, And yet, friends, it is the preacher's task to enact a weekly sting operation upon all of us, not just some of us. Because this text has in some ways a universal reach. Because Jesus doesn't just stare directly at old men with long beards. He stares at all of us through the word. He stares at every single one of us with a sting operation. And essentially saying, I see you too. I see how you're misusing your own gifts and your own personality. I see how... You know, you've abused yourself, you abuse others. Like, I, I see through all the masquerade uh, and, and how we so often reject the founder and the founder's revealed charter. Um, so uh, if that's you today, and biblically speaking, it is, uh, if you, like me, are a reject, somebody who's rejected God, and I don't principally mean that you feel rejected by peers or society, you might, you might not. I mean something darker. Like, if... You are, objectively speaking, a rejecter of God. Well, you have a friend, someone else who was rejected, a rejected cornerstone, the one who accepts God's spurners who turn toward him and trust that he and he alone can grant eternal immunity. And so if you are done with merit-based religion, climbing the gym class rope to heaven by your own virtues, Uh, And if you are finished with your job of the hut belly God of self-acceptance, self-actualization, and self-adoration, if you are crushed by your ever-present performance anxiety, showcasing for the world what you think they want to see, yes, if you are a reject, then today, this morning, you have a place of acceptance. You have a place of acceptance, the cornerstone, the rock, the rock that is Christ with a shelter cut into it, The hymnist Top Lady uh, wrote these lyrics, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, that is cut out for me, that somebody jabbed this thing to the point where it created a shelter for every last one of us. And faith, here's what faith is. Faith is the courage to accept the acceptance of a rejected Jesus. And if you can accept the acceptance of Christ this morning, well, then this rock is for you. I encourage you to head on up to our own like makeshift vineyard up here where we have the fruit of the vine. Come to the communion table. We have got plenty of wine and enough forgiveness to pardon every last one of us and the rest of the world. It is a foretaste, a sample of the perfection which is surely to come for every last one of us. Amen. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your